But hi, welcome to uh, Critical Q&A for today. This is going to be a live show, obviously. <laughs> and, um, and there we go. Okay, good. Everybody's, uh, yes, everybody's fine on that. And yes, I do have this little piece of equipment that I've now set up where I can highlight y'all's comments as we go uh, and show them on the screen here. And I am pretty happy about that. <laughs> it's, this, it's the little things that mean so much, you know. Uh, and I figured that that would be um, a good thing to do for um, a live show, you know, to be able to highlight your your questions and throw them up there. And uh, believe it or not, if you're not using something called StreamYard or another uh, streaming thing, then it's very hard to figure out how to get that to happen. But I did finally get it done, and so here we are. Um, Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Good good questions here already coming in. So um, so this is a live stream, and so what we're going to do is I have pre-selected some questions that I will be throwing up on the screen, and then I will be taking questions from you guys in the chat. And um, it helps me to find your questions if you put uh, at Chris Shelton MSC uh, at, the, at the front of your question so it will highlight my name when you show up in the chat with the at me, then um, that helps me see your questions easier as I'm, as I'm scrolling through the chat box to get to them. So if you want to do that, that'll make it easier. And of course, super chat questions will go to the top of the queue uh, as I go back and forth here answering questions. I will definitely not end the stream with unanswered uh, questions from super chats. Uh, so that all being said... And everything working okay, and everybody on board, and us getting started uh, way earlier than I had <laughs> intended to. Let's go ahead and just get to it. Um, okay, only watching until the football starts. Well, I'll 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 try to keep it interesting. Um, okay, so first things first. Actually, let's uh, we're on the chat there. Good. So let's go to our first question. And. That question is, uh, OT8 reveals that your whole track memories are not your memories, but your body Thetan's memories. How do OT8s continue justifying, quote-unquote, pulling in the bad things that happened to them prior to them becoming OT8? And how do they justify pulling in bad things that happened to them after becoming OT8, since they can't remember their own memories yet because that's what they're supposed to learn to do in future OT levels. Okay. All right. So, interesting question. Um, I don't know that the question actually frames the situation like it actually is presented in Scientology, so let me talk about my understanding of how that, how that stuff works. Um, because you're talking about, okay, so in Scientology, you have these operating Thetan levels, these OT levels. They are confidential. And uh, the highest one is OT8. And at that level, you are told this is supposed to be the first true OT level. All of the levels up until OT8 are a matter of negative gain, meaning you are stripping things away from you and thereby becoming more and more the little 
happy, innocent, naive, or not naive, but native state being that you really are this godlike entity called a Thetan, and that is you, and that is me, and that is, you know, Joe Schmo, and all of us are Thetans at deep, deep, deep down inside. And these Thetans have been having lots and lots of traumatic experiences, being born, dying off, being born, dying off for millions and millions and millions and trillions and quadrillions of years. So here you are now arrived on planet Earth, or here you are on planet Earth arriving in Scientology and going up its levels and getting rid of all of this junk that you've accumulated. A very similar analogy would be Jacob Marley's uh, chains of sin that he carries with him from the Christmas Carol story, right? Dickens. Um, it's that kind of concept. Um, so... When you get to OT8, apparently you're told that a lot of the crap and nonsense and memories and everything that you uh, were accumulating were because of your body thetans and not because of you. That's actually something you learn a little earlier than OT8. I'm not, see, the, the, the clarification on OT8 is a little weird um, because you're already given the idea earlier on OT level three that body thetans exist, that, these, that there are these other thetans, these other spiritual entities that are adhered to you, that are stuck to you, that are glommed on uh, and, and semi-conscious. They're asleep a lot. They're not really in good shape. They, they, they pop up every now and again and, and have little voices in your head that you hear. Well, that's, that's the body thetans. That's not you. That's the body thetans. And weird memories that you have of things that, that don't seem to make a lot of sense to you, even past life memories, those are from the body thetans. Um, but you do have your own time track of experience that you have experienced. And it's not your body thetans' memories. They're yours. And that's what you have supposedly you know, stripped away by the time you get up to OT8. So as I understand it, you're being told that, you know, all that crap that you were carrying around with you is uh, mostly their memories and nonsense, but you do still have your own actual valid, legit experiences. But the reason I put this question up today was to talk about this pulling it in thing, because that's actually a very different thing from memory. Uh, pulling something in in Scientology, this expression that we use, uh, oh, he must have pulled it in, meaning he kind of deserved it or it was karmic or somehow it, it came into his life or universe or hers. It's not gender specific. Um, these... This concept of pulling it in is is not related to at, at all to body thetans or memory. So that's why the the whole question I kind of go what? Um, so he'll me explain. Hubbard in 1952 gave a series of lectures called the Philadelphia Doctorate Course. These are really important lectures in Scientology's history. Um, these are the lectures where Hubbard claimed that Aleister Crowley was his good friend. These are the lectures where Hubbard was literally arrested by uh, marshals who came in and busted up the conference because he was, I think, delinquent on a check or something. Anyway, they came and, and arrested him and, and right in the middle of a, of a thing. Anyway, that's not all recorded in the lectures, of course. Scientologists don't know that, but it did happen. Um, but the other thing, that he, but the main thing that the lectures had to do with was Hubbard trying to explain how does 
a spiritual entity that has no matter, energy, space, or time connected with it in order for it to exist. It's a spiritual entity. It exists in the theta universe, not in the physical universe. All of this could disappear tomorrow, and you and me as thetans would still be alive and would still be running around doing whatever it is we were doing. We just wouldn't be doing it here. There is an existence beyond this universe, according to Scientology dogma and theology. So, what is that all about? Well, Hubbard never really gets into it very much. But what he did do is he tried to explain Scientology, or sorry, Thetans, and how they respond and react to the physical universe and the shenanigans that go on here. He tried to explain it in terms of energy flows. And he said that Thetans can create and use energy flows to manipulate matter, energy, space, and time, and or even create matter, energy, space, and time. They can just will it into existence, and it's there. And then they can use tractor beams and presser beams to push and pull things away or, or towards them. And this is how you manipulate a body as a thetan. How do you control a body? Well, you can tell... The brain, I guess, as a, as a sort of interim control center, what to do. Or you can just control the body directly with these energy flows. Now, it gets a little weird here, as though, as though it hasn't gotten weird already. Um, it gets a little weird here um, because... Um, this pulling it in thing has to do with when a thetan does something bad or wrong and sees that he has done something bad or wrong. Because what that, if I'm remembering all this right, what that, what that causes or creates in the Thetan is a withdrawal from that thing that he hurt or area that he damaged or destroyed. They don't want to do that again. He, Hubbard says Thetans are basically good. They, they want to get along. They want things to be good. They don't want to destroy things callously or, you know, without remorse and that sort of thing. And, um, yes, thank you very much, Fabian, for that super chat. I see you there. Thank you. Uh, it's awesome. Um, so they withdraw. They pull back. They, they withdraw their energy from that thing and thereby create Hubbard if I'm again if I'm remembering all this right they create a vacuum of energy flow they 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 pull back from that and that creates this vacuum which pulls things into it because vacuums don't like to exist when there's you know pressure around them right or energy around them and this was sort of the concept of pulling things in is the thetan is withdrawing his energy and attention from a thing but it's not withdrawing from him because it's pulling he's he's now created this situation where things are now coming in toward him and by things we don't just mean physical objects we mean actions uh, reactions, consequences. So I come up and slap Joe for no good reason. <gasps> Ooh, I did a bad thing. I pull back from Joe, and Joe rushes into that vacuum of, 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 of uh, that I've left there, you know, and slaps me back. I've pulled in Joe's attention 
and intention and energy on me, right? By withdrawing. And that's the action of pulling something in in Scientology. I don't know that we've ever broken this down this way, but Hubbard breaks it down in the lectures. And there you go. That's kind of what that means. So you see, it doesn't have anything to do with memories or body thetans. It has to do with energy flows. Um, and then, the, then there's an additional layer on this, which is that Hubbard then says, you can imagine all of this has happened when it really hasn't happened. And that adds another layer of kind of insanity on top of this because, you know, for the Thetan, because here you go and um, something bad happens to you. Somebody, you know, you're, you're, you're just sitting there minding your own business and some guy comes up and, you know, and slaps you upside the head. You didn't do anything to, 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 to pull that in. You didn't deserve that. There's no karmic retribution happening there. You're just sitting there minding your own business. But because of all the earlier times that you did do bad things and had bad things happen to you, you start imagining that you must have done something to deserve this action of Joe coming up and hitting you. And, um, and that can mess with your energy flows and with this, this thing of, oh, now I feel like I must have done something to pull this in. And then that, anyway, and it just gets very confusing very quickly on all of this, by the way. It's, you know, Scientologists sit there and have to diagram this out on, you know, with, with illustrations and pictures and stuff and make it make sense because it's a little weird. But, um, but I'm doing my best here to try to explain this, this concept of pulling things in. And that's why I thought I might uh, address this question. So there you go. Um, and, it, you know, it's not like all of this is completely disrelated to how we act in the real world. You know what I mean? People do hurt each other and, and create vacuums of influence and, and that sort of thing. But it's not quite as literal as Hubbard presents it with energy flows and, and tractor beams and presser beams and this kind of thing. He really went all out going into that. So, okay. So there we go with uh, all of that answer. Okay, so um, so that's our first one. All right, let's go back up the comments here. I've got uh, I've got another screen set up over here where I can highlight them. So let me start going through here. Um, now we have this super chat from Fabian, who asks. Um, oh, looks like I need to. Uh, let's see if I can adjust this so y'all can see it better let's see here no just uh okay not quite working exactly as intended was lr here's the question that fabian asked was lrh's looks never a concern even a detergent he looks neither sympathetic nor like a spiritual person more like somebody who discovered an oil field by accident um Okay, that interesting question, Fabian. Um, so what we have there is uh, some pictures are flattering of Hubbard and some are not. Hubbard uh, was himself a photographer and, and took an awful lot of photos of himself where he looks perfectly normal and fine and even uh, somewhat uh, put together. Uh, and then there are photos of him taken, you know, in more candid moments where you see kind of more what he really was sort of like, and he was not a very physically attractive man. 
Um, Hubbard's attractive qualities had to do with his larger-than-life presence, his storytelling uh, ability, the sort of charisma that comes with being loud and proud and, and being the guy who dominates conversations and is always the center of attention. That was Hubbard's kind of uh, hook. And, um, and back in that day and time, let's remember that, you know, we're also talking about um, a man who was intensely popular for a small number of people 80, 70 or 80 years ago. So uh, it was a different time, right? And uh, different standards and that sort of thing, too. We can also factor that in. So Hubbard was not ever, I don't think, particularly a very good looking man. But these other attributes he had um, were magnetic and did draw people into him and did influence them in a positive way. Otherwise, he never would have had a leg to stand on as a public speaker and nobody ever would have really listened to him. But he truly did say and do funny things and entertaining things and could tell an interesting story and could tie a lesson to that story. And that was generally how he did his lecturing. So, um, so yeah, I'm not really sure what to say about, um, you know, that. As far as his detergent and stuff, you know, Hubbard was uh, f uh, fanatical about smells, about scents, especially once the Sea Org got going. I don't know. We never really hear too much about this prior to the Sea Org. But from 1967 forward, L. Ron Hubbard was, was, uh, wrote about and said many times that, he, um, that, that cleanliness and body odor was not, you know, cleanliness is, is a virtue. And uh, being smelly or, you know, looking not very good and that kind of thing is not a good thing to do on the boats. And, you know, of course, we could talk to people who were on the ship as to, you know, how much did Hubbard practice what he preached. But as I understand it, for example, when he had his laundry done, and he had his laundry done regularly by his messengers, these girls and boys who served him, um, they had to rinse out the clothes like seven, eight, nine times to get all the smells of all the detergents out of those clothes. So yeah, he did use detergents and and was and was kind of fanatically clean as far as the as, at least as far as the reports of all of that go. So, um, okay. So there you go with with that. Um, so thanks for that question, Fabian. It's a it's an interesting one for sure. Um, okay, I've got some other. Let's see if we've got another cool from Vienna. Wow. All right. Oh, my God. Hubbard put the ass in ascot. That's hilarious. Um, yeah, there was the smoking smell. Actually, that's a good point. That's a good point, Tim. He probably did stink to high heaven from the smoking. Um, okay. Okay, good. So we'll get back to that. Let's go ahead and get to one of my other preset questions i'll bounce back and forth between them as we go here uh okay yeah good here we go so uh and excuse me for being a little flustered here i really did not expect to be i'm still coming down from <laughs> good hitting live like 12 minutes before i meant to uh okay so let's go over to the next question here and that is this um 
Johan J.J. Johnson, uh, with all the hate on Scientology recently, for example, the Masterson trial, Miscavige about to be served, etc., do you think it will get to a point where Miscavige will just cash out and disappear in the same way the Nazis did after World War II? With his resources, it would be easy to bribe some corrupt government and get a new name and live a luxury retirement somewhere on a remote Pacific island. Okay, good question. Um, because what you, the scenario you suggest there is entirely plausible. And yes, Miscavige could do that. In fact, there's an L. Ron Hubbard reference, an issue called the responsibility of leaders. And Mike Rinder and others who have come down from the gold base and were in Miscavige's inner circle have described the fact that this policy, this issue, um, is a Bible for Miscavige. He follows it to the letter. He loves it. He lives it. He, he's really all about this issue. And it covers a lot of territory, way more than I could uh, even begin to cover here in today's Q&A. I, I could do a whole breakdown on just that policy letter. It's intense, and there's a lot in it. Um, and maybe I'll do that at some point. But one of the one of the things that Hubbard talks about is being uh, the, the, the central focus of the issue is what it means to be a leader and how you are a leader. And he compares and uses the historical story of Simone Bolivar, liberator of, of South America, um, as the basis of what is good and bad in leadership and how a leader should act. And he uses this example of, um, you know, sort of, uh, I, I don't know how you want to describe it, but certainly not modern times, uh, you know, an older time period when, um, when this revolution was happening against Spain. And uh, it was a rough time. People, you know, lived and died, and there was uh, all kinds of criminality and nonsense going on, and Hubbard kind of seems to really get into that and talks about how, as a leader, you need to, um, you know, be ruthless. And if your enemies are stalking you or your enemies are a danger to you, you take them out. I mean, he doesn't pull any punches in this issue. And one of the things that he says in the issue is that if you want to move off of a position of power, if you want to, like, okay, I'm done now. I don't want to do this anymore. I want to go, you know, lay on the beach in, in Belize and, and not have to worry about this anymore – then you would have to turn over everything you're doing to somebody else uh, or a group of people who are going to take over your job, right? And you have to give every single bit of it to them. You have to move off and not, not have any connection with it anymore. And he makes an example very similar to your question where he says um, that you would bribe local officials. You'd, you'd take off. You would, you'd turn everything over, take off bribe the local officials around you to keep everything quiet and keep your life cool and clear and live the life of Riley for the rest of your existence and never, ever touch or think about or go near that again. Never, never go, you know, for David Miscavige, that would be Scientology, right? Never think about it, talk about it, do anything with it or have any connection with it of any kind. This is Hubbard's suggestion right in his policies. So could David Miscavige see that? You know, it's his Bible. Of course he's seen it. He knows all about it. He knows it up one side and down the other. So would he do that? Well, I suppose if he was following L. Ron Hubbard's instructions, he could. Would he, though? Would he? 
right? That's the big question. And who knows? I don't know. I'm not privy to David Miscavige's inner monologues, but I believe based on everything I know about the man and what I know about cult leaders in general, a la Jim Jones, David Koresh, um, you know, certain others, um, Keith Ranieri, right? Like all these, all these cult leader guys tend to not do that. There are plenty of opportunities for these guys to just take off, to just go, oh, you know, this is too much. This is, uh, no, I can't. I'm, I'm out. I'm done. Any sensible person long before things got so out of hand would have pulled the ripcord and taken off, right? Would have, would have hit the eject button. But they don't. They don't do that because they are so living in a delusional world where they are the kingpin. They are the one who has all the power, and they are very, very reluctant to want to give it up. They got everything. They seem to have everything, right? Even when everything's falling apart around them, by that stage that things are actually falling apart, they tend to have this narcissistic breakdown, and they just lose their shit, basically, right? Hubbard did, Koresh did, Jim Jones did. We see other very prominent public figures right now absolutely losing their minds publicly for everybody to see. And everybody's got something to say about it except, you know, a helping hand to chill these guys out and give them the mental health fair, you know, help that they need. Um, which I have mixed feelings about. I understand that awful is awful, and people you know, saying awful things are very deserving of all the consequences and karma that they get. Um, so I get all that. But what we're looking at is you know, this narcissistic meltdown, this sort of spiraling that happens. And, um, and that is what tends to happen with these guys rather than them sensibly thinking, oh, you know what? Now might be the good time to get the hell out of Dodge. Now might be the good time for me to stop this and, and, and take care of A number one. And they just never seem to be able to figure that part out, you know? So is Miscavige the exception to that rule? Maybe. It's a little hard to say, you know, where things are going to go with all of that. It's, it's, there's, there's a number of different paths that present themselves if Scientology should actually collapse beyond the point of no return, and it's not really there yet. But if it gets there, you know, how's he going to act? Hard to say, but I would predict more so that he would stay with the sinking ship and uh, go down with it rather than uh, do what Hubbard even suggested and go off to, you know, someplace and and take off. So, um, okay, so there's that. All right, so now let's see. Um, I think we had some other some other super chat comes in here. Oh yeah, Anthony Spurgeon's had one. Thank you. And let's go ahead and check that. Oh, okay. And then Fabian had another one. Good. Okay. Well, first off, and bamboozled did excellent. Well, let me go in order. Um, make sure you can hear me here. Okay, Anthony asks. Uh, yeah. There we go. What did Hubbard say about dictators? And then um, I'll have to fix it on the screen there so it shows up more clearly. But he asks, uh, praise? Did he praise dictators? So, um, no. 
I didn't see Hubbard praising dictators. Hubbard definitely did not have a favorable opinion about Hitler, for example, um, or Mussolini. You know, I, he, I think he kind of, uh, he, he sort of joked about them in a degrading way. He would refer to, when he did refer to them, and there was really only a handful of times that he did, he would refer to them as psychotics, as nutcases, as suppressives, as people, you know, as criminal types, right? And, and Hubbard's use of that was always in an effort to try to distance himself and make himself the opposite of that. So if something was bad, science is bad, or dictatorships are bad, or communism is bad, or socialism is bad, and Hubbard said all, all of these things, they're only bad because, look, we're not that. We're the opposite of that, right? And, and it was used as a, in marketing, there's a thing called positioning, where you frame or position yourself and with association to good or bad things. And you're trying to establish that connection. So every time somebody thinks of, you know, carnation milk, they're thinking of, you know, the, the, the purest, whitest, most beautiful milk ever, right, kind of thing. And you try to use marketing and, and advertising to, to create that association. Well, Hubbard did the exact same thing using dictators and criminals, you know, Stalin and Russia and all of this. And remember, Hubbard's doing all of this talking in the United States, in the United Kingdom, very westernized countries in the middle of the Cold War, at the beginning and during the Cold War. So Hubbard died before that was over. His entire you know, end-life existence was that Russia were the horrible, awful bad guys, and he would use them all the time as a foil or as a, as a positioning you know, thing to highlight how Scientology and how his efforts and actions were the opposite of those things. Um, and it's effective. It's an effective tool to use in, 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 uh, for, you know, in, in getting people to think the way you want them to. So um, that's what I can say about that. Okay, now... Um, let's go to bamboozled before I bop over back to my preset questions. I'll take up these other super chat questions. Um, I'm just, I'm just making this up as I go, by the way. <laughs> okay. So bamboozled says question in your estimation, how many Scientologists have repressed their sexuality? Uh, let's see if we can get that. Yeah. It's not even worth throwing up. In light of the church's disdain for LGBTQ, any guesses as to numbers? Okay. Um, boy, I, you know, I really would not have any idea how to answer this question in terms of numbers um, or percentages. It's, you know, it, we're, we are talking about a minority group in society in general. So within the world of Scientology, how many closeted, you know, homosexuals or LGBT are there? Well, they definitely exist. There's no question about it. I mean, Nora, uh, you know, remember her, she, um, uh, Nora Crest, right? I've interviewed her. She spoke quite clearly about this and how it is a repressed, oppressed you know, uh, sexual norms in Scientology are very, very binary in nature. So, um, and, you know, and you don't really have a lot of leeway or, or options in that regard. So, you know, but Scientology is also a, a, a small group of people. So, I don't know, you know, maybe how many, 100, 200, you know, 300? I mean, we're talking about 
you know, uh, 30,000 people. So whatever the percentages on that work out to be is pretty, would probably be about that, I think. Um, that's what I, I don't know. That's my best guess on that, you know, a few hundred. And, uh, you know, what I would also like to comment on here with this is how many, and I think this is probably a, a, a bigger problem in the world of Scientology and especially in the world of Sea Org, how many undiagnosed PTSD, how much undiagnosed depression and anxiety, uh, even bipolar, how much, I mean, how, wh- what are we looking at there? I think we're looking at larger numbers there because Scientology actively creates those conditions in people. Uh, so I think you would have a very high percentage of Sea Org members with undiagnosed um, uh, personality disorders or even mental health conditions. Okay, so then we go down to Fabian again uh, with another super chat. Can you elaborate regarding Free Zone slash Ron's Org and Captain Bill Robertson? Do you know more on the OT levels past OT8 by Captain Bill Robertson? Um, Fabian, here's what I can elaborate on about Bill Robertson, Captain Bill, and the Free Zone is there it's a roll your own Scientology out there. It's the wild, wild west as far as what you want to think or believe about L. Ron Hubbard and his and his so-called technology. Um people in the field, out in the independent world, in the in the Ron's org stuff, come up with their own ideology, come up with their own theology, and call it Scientology. And that's what Captain Bill was doing. He went off on all kinds of tangents and ran wild with the whole track space opera alien stuff. And the, the man was probably certifiably insane. He was absolutely out to lunch. Uh, he was completely out of touch with reality. And I don't really have good things to say about Captain Bill. I don't have bad things to say about him either. I just have rather harsh things to say about his mental state because he was nuts. And he said nutty things, things that were absolutely delusional. And he was a real example of how Scientology, you know, maybe he was always that way, but Scientology always dials it up to 11. And this is something that is not just a cute phrase I pulled out of Spinal Tap. It's, a, it's, it's the best way I know how to communicate to people that they take it way beyond any level of rationality or normalcy. Uh, it's just unreasonable to expect that anything Captain Bill had to say was had anything to do with reality. So, you know, so what do you do with that? Well, you just kind of label it for what it is and ignore it. And that's what I do. I don't pay attention to the independent field's theology because there's about 30 of them. And I could go down rabbit holes all day long with the independents. But we're talking about a handful of people who even believe this stuff. If you think Scientology is small, independent Scientology is tiny. It's, it's, it's so minusculely small, it's almost not even worth discussing. Um, I mean, we're talking about maybe a thousand people in the world who are actively involved in independent Scientology. It's just not, it's, the numbers aren't even impressive. They're, 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 it's, it's clearly a way stop on the way out of Scientology's headspace, or it's a place where you can park yourself and get a small community of people who are going to continue to reinforce each other's belief 
in the madness of L. Ron Hubbard's nonsense. You know, it's, it's, and to me, as I went over, you know, when I was talking to John two weeks ago when we did that whole breakdown on the occult and Scientology and, and the actual origin story and, and foundation of what Scientology is really all about. If you want to know the bottom line brass tacks with Scientology, it's in that podcast. And the sad thing, and I commented at the end of the show about this, was here you have a group of people who actually get themselves extricated out of this totalitarian control system, this mental minefield of, of awfulness, and then they continue doing it to themselves. That's how I see it. I realize that there are an awful lot of people out there who don't share my views on this, that I, am, that I have a rather harsh take on it. But I am looking at it from the point of view of the damage that it does to people, the long-term damage, the delusory aspect of it, the false memory implantation of it, the transinduction of it, the suggestibility that follows with that transinduction. These are things that are real. These are not just opinions that some social scientists have. This is, this is studied stuff. And it's important to our mental health that we have a that we keep in touch with reality, even when the reality is disagreeable or hard or diff, you know hard to manage or deal with. I'd rather live with an uncomfortable truth than a pleasing lie. And you know I understand in the recovery process people have steps they need to take and you can't get it all at once you don't want to cold water ice water dip somebody you know in a recovery process you want to you know you want to take it step by step and gradually get them out of it but I'm not trying to do that with this channel that's not my purpose or what I'm what I'm about I'm not trying to you know give you a little bit at a time i'm try- I, I i've been at this too long now and i know too much and i've already put all that out there to debunk scientology and debunk what you know the nonsense of it and at this point now knowing how damaging it is to people's mental health i can only say i can only call it like i see it and the way i see it is that is that this is not good for people so um so, you know, that's what I can elaborate on when I start thinking about free zone, Ron's org, Scientology, is I think about people who are spinning their wheels in a desperate attempt to hold on to some degree of certainty and keep their emotional needs going that are satisfied by this nonsense, rather than, you know, taking the harsh plunge and dealing with the reality that L. Ron Hubbard was a lying scumbag who only wanted to control people. But that's the, that's the reality of the thing as I see it. And like I said, I know people will disagree with me on that. I totally get it. Um, but that's what I've got on that. Okay, so... Okay, so let's carry on here. Um, okay. Yes. <laughs> yes, I did see this. Uh, Merriam-Webster says that gaslighting was the most looked up word last year. Uh, I thought that was uh, good because it is very misused out there, by the way, right? Every time somebody is lying to you or you disagree with somebody, it doesn't mean they're gaslighting you, folks. Uh, It's a much more involved operation than just somebody lying to you for their own uh, advantage. 
that's you know there's there anyway so i'm glad people are looking this term up more um but i also wonder if miriam webster isn't gaslighting us (laughs) stupid joke but okay um all right let's go carry on here yes i've caught up on the super chats now um good thank you nerman um for that comment okay let's go back up to where we have questions huh just very quickly x science says the executive director at the mission where i worked kind of felt like l ron hubbard could use a picture of himself as a point to view from did you ever consider that no never I never, ever considered that L. Ron Hubbard's pictures on the walls were anything other than pictures on the walls. That is interesting. I could see why somebody like the ED at your mission could think something so insanely stupid, but I do not, um, I do not, I didn't, I never heard anybody ever say or suggest anything like that when I was in Scientology. So it's interesting for sure, definitely, but not something I had ever thought of. Um, Okay. So let's go back to my preset questions here. We answered that one. Let's go to Alex C. How does Sea Org recruitment work? Do recruiting officers visit different Scientology churches looking for prospects? Did public and staff try to avoid them? All right. Let me share with you my recruiting experience in Scientology. I spent a year doing Sea Org recruitment. Full year. I recruited about 11 people into the Sea Org. I recruited about 20 people to staff at Scientology city-level churches in order to get those Sea Org members. Uh, So I know a little bit about this. And um, let's see. How does it work? Well, basically, Sea Org recruiters are not Scientologists' favorite people. They come around often to the various churches, uh, Denver, Milano, New York, wherever. You know, they, they travel around, they tour, and they will either go after targeted people, like there's a specific person they want to get, or more often, they'll just show up, see who's around, try to start recruiting and talking to them, and sit them down. And what they want to do is they come into town and they want to find prospects, people who are qualified to be in the Sea Org, which means no LSD, no angel dust, no or of any of its derivatives, a Scientologist in good standing, somebody who's preferably had wins and gains with Scientology is pretty hardcore about it because you're going to ask them to, you know, you're going to sit down with them and you're going to talk to them and try to convince them to sign over a billion-year contract and, and give over their entire life. They're now dedicating themselves to nothing but Scientology 24-7. That's a big ask, And so it requires a pretty big briefing to get them to do it. And I've done videos about this. I broke it all down as to what that briefing consists of. And it has a lot to do with either conspiracy theories and and fear-mongering and scaring the shit out of people and then presenting... You know, now that, now that you've traumatized them with all these lies and bullshit about conspiracies that don't exist and how the evil psychs are coming to get you and how the government is untrustworthy and can never be listened to and is really just uh, an ally of evil 
and how uh, all of the institutions of our society are set up to reinforce this and how the evil forces out there are not just the commies or the bad guys. They are interstellar bad guys. They're whole track bad guys. They're bad guys that have been bad guys for thousands and millions of years, and they're still trying to work their evil magic on us now, in the here and now. This is what this briefing is all about, is getting somebody to get into this headspace where they are terrified of the world around them because of all the evil forces arrayed against them. And then once you get them in that headspace, you present the Sea Org. And you say, here's what L. Ron Hubbard had to say about the Sea Org and the importance of what we're doing and why this is crucial that you drop everything and do this right now. Not tomorrow, not the next day, not next week, right now. And this is how we would talk to people. I did it. I mean, I'm telling you, I was, I was the hardcore recruiter guy. And generally, people hated recruiters, right? Because if you didn't, if you got this whole briefing and it would take hours to deliver this stuff, or maybe, not, maybe you didn't even go down the conspiracy theory rabbit hole of recruitment. Maybe you recruited somebody just bolstering and love bombing them and working them over and working them over about why this is more important than anything they're trying to do with their life. Oh, you want to be a writer? Eh, you've been a writer before. You want to be a mother? Eh, you've been a mother millions of times. You want to uh, go into politics and get Scientology popular through politics? Eh, you've been a politician a million times before. And look at this broken-ass system. You think you're going to go in there by yourself and change that? No way. You need to be part of the team. The team is where it's at. This is what you need to be doing. You need to join the Sea Org. So by hook or by crook, they're trying to get you into a headspace where you see that the only real option you have in order to be an ethical, responsible Scientologist is to join the Sea Org. Well, that pitch doesn't work on everybody. And yet it's an intense guilt trip. Whether you use the conspiracy theory or you do something else, you're guilt tripping these people. And you're trying to guilt trip them into joining the Sea Org because it's the right thing to do. It's the responsible thing to do. And if it doesn't work, then you generally just piss them off because now they feel bad about their own life goals and purposes. I want to finish high school. <laughs> I want to finish college. I like my job. I like my family. I don't want to move from here. None of that matters to the Sea Org recruiters. They couldn't care less about any of that. Right, because that's all in, that's all temporary. That's all impermanent. That's all stuff. That's just you playing the game of of the prison planet of Earth. Is how they'll talk to you. It's how I used to talk to people, and and it would generally kind of make them a little upset. And I'd be good. It's good you're upset. Look, why are you upset about this? All I'm suggesting is you go save the world. What's so wrong with that? Right. I mean, you can really give and get on this. You can go back and forth for quite a while, and. Uh, and if it doesn't work, right, you could create an awful lot of ill feeling. And Sea Org recruiters don't really care. You know, they're like, oh, you know, once they blow you off, once you've said no enough times that they finally get you're really not going to do it, then you're just an asshole, right? Oh, that asshole, that out, of, out, of, out ethics scumbag, you know, can't see the truth, can't see what's really going on. We tell him everything. We show him everything. We give him all the L. Ron Hubbard 
references and issues and show him the, the, the reality of the situation. And they would rather just live in the Matrix, right? Like that guy in the movie. Remember the Matrix, right? The um, uh, Cypher, the character who was like, you know what? I don't care if it's all fake. It tastes great, feels great, and I'd rather have this than the reality that I'm stuck in, right? That's how Sea Org members see themselves is they think they're red-pilling the shit out of you. And if you don't take to it, you're just Cypher. You're just a scumbag. You're, you'd just rather go off and be in prison than deal with the reality of things. So... I think I harped on that enough, but um, that's kind of the situation with uh, with Sea Org and Sea Org recruitment. And obviously, with this happening, you know, and these guys come in and then leave, and they leave the wreckage behind of, of dissatisfied, unhappy, guilt-tripped, fear-mongered people, and the local church now has to pick up the pieces. You know, they have to call the people back in. Ah, oh, yeah, that Sea Org guy was off the rails. And we're not really all about that. We want you to continue on service. You're a good person. You're fine. You want to finish college. Totally understandable. I get it. You know, they got to pick up the pieces there. And, if, and often they don't, by the way, because they don't really care about their public either. But when they do or there is interpersonal connections and friendliness and that kind of thing, they might try to do that. And... Um, and it would generally tend to upset the staff because of that fact that the staff now have to deal with the fallout of all this. So that's why Sea Org members and Sea Org recruitment is a very unpopular subject in most churches of Scientology. I uh, hope that hope that all breaks that down a little bit. Okay. Um, oh, look at us clipping right along here. So let's see here. Okay, here's a question from Holly Everett. Um, yeah, again, I'll, I'll get that fixed so we can see the whole damn question on the screen. Why do you think Hubbard didn't turn his cult towards sexual abuse or the idea of multiple wives slash partners? It seems that most of the cults with leaders with big egos go that way. That's a great question, Holly. That is a really good question. Um, I don't know exactly why, except I suspect perhaps... L. Ron Hubbard had one STD too many. There's no evidence of that, okay? This is pure conjecture on my part. But L. Ron Hubbard was a serial philanderer his entire life. Up until when? 1960s, right? He's, in his, he's now into his, uh, he was born in 1911. So this is now Hubbard in his 50s, 60s, you know? Um, and I think his body just broke down sexually. I just think he, um, I, I just don't think he was into it at a certain point. I think he kind of flipped away from uh, sexual, uh, what's the word, I, hyper, hypersexuality. I think he flipped from that into, you know, this kind of other headspace, you could say. Because it was in the early 1960s, if you delve deep into what Hubbard was doing and how the research trail was going and what Hubbard was involving himself in, it was the early 1963-64 time period where L. Ron Hubbard develops solo auditing, where you're sitting in a room auditing yourself. Well, he was the one who piloted that or figured that out. 
And I think he got way more interested in down those rabbit holes of, of, of the delusional insanity that he was convincing himself was real. And I think his attention and thoughts and efforts went in that direction. And that's where his sexuality or his sexual behavior sort of was sublimated to. The, again, total conjecture on my part, okay? You asked, this is my, my thoughts on it. Um, because there was no evidence of any kind that from the mid-1960s forward that L. Ron Hubbard even had sex anymore. He slept separately from his wife. They slept in separate rooms. Um, he clearly did not like his children. In 1950, late 1959, he was betrayed by, his, uh, by L. Ron Hubbard Jr., his nibs, and I think, and then in the 1970s, uh, his, his other, one of his other sons uh, committed suicide. You know, and L. Ron Hubbard took that. His response to that was, God damn it, he did it to me. Why does he keep doing these things to me? You know, when his own son commits suicide, his response is, why does he keep doing things like this to me, right? I mean, Hubbard was a fucking asshole. Pardon my French. So, um, so I don't, so his sexual life, I think, was dead by that point. And I, and I, and I guess that's the reason why we lucked out of, having a sex cult, you know, is because just Hubbard just wasn't really there. He didn't want to go in that direction for whatever reason. And I think the reasons were connected to his body just giving out on those, uh, on that. So that's, you know, it's a guess, but it's a, it's maybe a partially educated one. Uh, yeah. But it is interesting. It is very interesting and noteworthy that most of these other cults do go off the rails on sex and Scientology kind of went in the opposite direction. You know, there could also be another thought here is that L. Ron Hubbard also found sex, the control of sex and the managing of people's sex lives to be such a good control mechanism that he would rather go in that direction than, than give people sex as a control mechanism. Because I think he knew how even with all the elements of, of mental health and stuff that he was messing around with, I think he knew how much you're playing with fire when you bring sex into the equation, how unpredictable things can get, and how riled up in a really uncontrollable way people can get when you start um, you know, going down those roads. So, Because there's very few things that drive people to more extreme emotional experiences or reactions than, um, than sex. So he might have just looked at that and went, you know, that's just not something I need to bring into this. It would be easier for me to just pill, tell people to chill out, keep it in your pants, and then eventually in the Sea Org tell people, we're done with this, uh, you know, multi-partner, have sex whenever you want thing. If you want to have sex in the Sea Org, you got to get married. And no, there's no heavy petting before then. You know, and I think he found that to be an easier way of dealing with it than trying to uh, go the other direction. So, okay. Um, now, that's all. Yeah, Hubbard did do sex magic stuff, but that's back. That's pre-Dianetics. That's why I'm trying to differentiate here that there's a line in the sand. Prior to that, Hubbard was a sexual monster. But after that, there's nothing. 
There's no sexual activity of any kind. So I, that's why, again, I think it might have been a physical thing, thing because he was a cad and an oaf and a sexual predator uh, up until then. So, you know, and the other factor that might be at play here, since we're going to talk Turkey about this, is Mary Sue, his third and final wife. Um, I've often said that there are, is a rather critical scene in the Paul Thomas Anderson movie, The Master, between the Amy Adams wife character and the um, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman, uh, L. Ron Hubbard character, about sex, and, sex and, and, and the sex in their relationship. And that might also be reflective, uh, if you've seen that movie, uh, you might know what I'm talking about, and that might also have been part of the equation there, is that Mary Sue was somebody who, as his third and final wife, really put the clamp down on him in some way. I don't know how, but maybe controlled it somehow, where it was like, listen, dude, you know, I'm going to be a valuable asset to you and to this organization, and, I'm, and I am invaluable to you, and you are not going to run around cheating on me where everybody in the world knows what's happening i'm not gonna i'm not gonna put up with that you know and hubbard uh had beat his former wives into submission but somehow maybe had a bit of a different relationship with her again all conjectural right but we have very little hard data to operate on uh around these issues so don't know maybe hope that was a sufficient answer Okay, um, so let's see here. Going on down the line now. Sorry as I catch up here, guys. Um, oh, Bud123 is asking me from something I said earlier. How did Scientology frame itself as the opposite of fascism and communism? By complaining about fascism and communism. It's very simple. This isn't complicated. L. Ron Hubbard would say, those communists are awful, bad, evil people. We are the opposite of them. That's it. That's all he had to do. He, that, that was it. You know, it was that simple. It was that kind of a thing. And repet repetition. He would do it over and over and over again. Hubbard was rabidly anti-communist. He was very much a man of his time, as far as that goes. Um, okay, so, okay, good. One gypsy asks, when did Dianetics come out? 19, May 9th, 1950. <laughs> no, I, I, I don't pay too much attention to Scientology. <laughs> yeah, May 9th, 1950. Okay, let's check out the next preset question I had. This is from Drea Bauer. I have been curious about Scientology and other cults for years. I have been thinking about walking into an org just to see what they would say. I want to understand how people get pulled into this cult. I've watched and very much enjoyed some of your YouTube content, but I still can't understand how people can't see that it's just fiction. Is this a bad idea? No, it's not a bad idea, Dre. It's a good question. It's just one that I've answered about 50 times, because it, and it just keeps coming up, so I'll just keep answering it, okay? I, I actually, you know, I'll, I only mind a little bit. 
Um, you know, there's a popular saying out there that facts don't care about your feelings, right? Science doesn't care about your beliefs. Facts don't care about your feelings. Well, the opposite's also true. And this is something that people really need to get. They really need to understand this. Your feelings don't care about your facts. When you are in a place where you are worried, concerned, upset, traumatized, some, you know, emotionally distraught, for whatever reason, those feelings drive your behavior. Those feelings have an awful lot of influence on how you see the world, how you, how you view or interpret the world, and how you respond to the world, right? Because of your interpretation of things. You know, it could be, a. It, we all know that when you're having a shitty bad day, right? When you're having a crap day, when you've had a, a you got fired from your job, you know, your, your, your best girl left you, you know, your kids are yelling at you, you don't feel appreciated or acknowledged or, or something bad has happened to you. That affects, it colors everything, right? I mean, we've all experienced this. We all have an emotional life. And those emotions are powerful. And when we are feeling regretful, when we are feeling distraught, when we are feeling victimized, we're not thinking clearly. The facts suddenly don't mean so much. You know it's temporary. You know you're going to get over it. You know life isn't horrible and awful. But that's not how you feel. You feel awful. You feel like you're ready to just jump off a cliff. You feel like, you know, your life is not worth living anymore sometimes. Those are powerful influencers. And when you ask me about why is it people walk into a church or walk into a cult situation where they are being offered a helping hand, where somebody is friendly and nice and warm to them and seems to come across with compassion and understanding, and that's what they're receiving, is somebody who actually sounds and feels like they care about them. Those emotions are going to influence their decision-making process more than facts. So maybe they've heard some things about Scientology. Maybe I mean, let's talk about a Scientology scenario where somebody walks into a church because it said something that tweaked, something, you know, some promo material, some body router, some person out handing out promo for Scientology says, hey, man, you don't look so good today. What's up? You know, or they come by one of those personality booths, one of those uh, stress tests where they got an e-meter out. Right, And the guy sits down. He's feeling a little distraught. He's feeling a little upset. Hey, have a seat. Tell me what's up. You know, pick up these cans. Ooh, what's that thought? You know, the needles jerking around. Ooh, you got some stress in your life? What's happening? Ah, uh, you know, I'm not feeling so good. Oh, tell me what happened. Tell me what's going on. I care. I, I want to know. I want to help you. You know, when this is what you're receiving and you're, and you're feeling the sincerity of it, it, it helps, it matters, right? There's a connection. And it's that connection that draws the person in, not the facts. 
Maybe they watched Scientology in the aftermath and they heard about all these horrible abuses, all these beatings, all this nonsense. But here in the real world, somebody who calls themselves a Scientologist seems to care about them. So they go, well, shit, I saw this on TV, but here it is in real life, and it's not that. So maybe there's more to this. Maybe Leah was wrong. Maybe, you know, you see what I mean? Like, this is just the thought process that goes on. I'm not even blaming people for it. You know what I mean? This is all perfectly organic and understandable. I mean, we have emotions, and they mean something to us. And it's about, this is why I say, Scientology is about appeals to your emotions. It's a big driver for us, and it's a big reason people do things. It's because it feels good to do it, or it feels better to do it. Or there's hope that they could feel better. Maybe in the moment, they don't even feel that much better. But somehow they're convinced that they could. And that's what the cult is offering. And the better the cult does that, the more refined the technique, the more caring the person seems. And this is all direct connection. This is not online stuff, right? The, the better chance that that person could be recruited into that situation. Now, how long are they going to stay? Who knows? Once they come down off the emotional travail or problems or trauma or once that lifts or once the fog lifts or whatever maybe they'll see it in a different light and they'll go oh my god and then they'll take off right then they'll go away from it they'll go oh geez scientology what Ooh, almost uh, you know uh, uh, dodge that bullet right so it's not like this is a this is an all-consuming thing but this is how it starts. This is how people get into these things, right? Is almost always that way. Not always that way. You know, somebody somebody commented recently on one of my cha- on one of my videos that they wish they could see how, you know, some people get involved in this just by answering a help wanted ad. That happens too. You know, I've I there are very few, but I have seen a handful of cases where people just got involved because It just seemed like the good thing to do in the moment. They needed a job. They needed a friend. They needed something. And this cult filled that role or need, right? Again, it always comes back to filling a need, but it may be not always an emotional need. Maybe some other logistical or financial need of some kind, right? So, or social need of some kind. So it doesn't always have to be an emotional connection, but I harp on it a lot Because I believe, and from my experience and and knowledge of this, that tends to be the thing that gets people in more often than not. So, uh, so there is that. Okay. Um, Yes, 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 yes. Okay, let's see if I've got any other questions here that I'm missing. Yes, they do. (laughs) uh okay say how okay i think i've caught up to all the questions that have been asked to me by super chat or by name here um
Exion, you mentioned something here earlier. I'm not quite getting what the question is. You said, I got recruited into the Sea Org twice, and I never spent a single day actually in. I also had LSD history in my auditing folders that they never asked about. How could they do it? Um, how could they do what? I'm, not, I'm sorry. I'm just not totally understanding your question. If you could uh, clarify that for me, I will definitely answer it for you. Um, okay, good. So that being said, I think I'm caught up on that. So let's go ahead and go back to um, my next preset question from Mark P. Way back in the 70s, I came into Scientology via a mission. At that time, to be a mission holder, you had to send 10% of the gross income to worldwide in the United Kingdom. The other 90% went to the mission holder to pay rent, utilities, and so on. How did it work for an org? Was it a percentage of gross income or some other method? Okay, so basically what you're talking about here is income or money distribution in the Scientology network. That's basically what this question is asking using a lot of Scientology's there. He's talking about missions, which are lower level organizations. They're sort of franchises. That's what they were originally called, by the way, like McDonald's. You know, you can have a franchise of Scientology. And then you have orgs or the, the city level churches. They're called orgs. That's short for organizations. So Scientology doesn't call its, its buildings churches. They call them orgs. Should tell you something about the setup. There's just that language. Anyway, um, yeah, missions used to do a straight 10%, and that 10% of the income would go straight up to uh, Scientology, which would use it for their legal funds, for legal costs. Um, orgs uh, contribute significantly more than 10%. They have um, various percentages that go up to management of their income every week based on uh, film lease payments, uh, management support, uh, promotional materials, furniture costs or, you know, renovations costs for the building um, and other support percentages that management dreams up, right? Because the system has changed multiple times over the years. It's never been the same system from the 1970s forward. The finance system has been revised and revised and revised and revised. Um, they revise it in order to try to allocate more of a percentage to the staff pay. Then they change it to reduce the staff pay. They've revised it to include bonuses. They revised it to take away bonuses. So, you know, lots of different changes over the years to this. But they, um, so I don't know what the current system is. And I was never a finance guy. So I was never paying attention to exactly what all the percentages were of all these different things that got taken out for the various reasons I described. But it was always a, you know, there's always a percent that you have to pay up the lines to management. And like I say, Scientology money goes up the line. It doesn't come back down. <laughs> it just goes up. So, um, so there is that. Okay. Um, oh, here we go, x -Cyan. Okay, how could they recruit me into the Sea Org, I'm imagining, right? Without asking me about my history with LSD, I thought that was against policy. It is. It is against policy. From 1978 forward, if, you, if a Sea Org recruiter 
uh, sign somebody up or even approach somebody to go into the Sea Org who had taken LSD, that Sea Org recruiter would be sent to the RPF immediately and at once. No questions asked, no stopping it, go, no collecting $200. You're going to the RPF and we don't care what else you have to say about it. And this, I have seen this enforced. Uh, they do not screw around with this. So the fact that you were recruited into the Sea Org without anybody even asking you about your LSD history is fascinating to me because that should be an impossibility. And it means that whoever was recruiting you had their head up their ass uh, as far as that goes because that is something they are absolutely supposed to check with you. So um, I don't know what else to say about that. You know, as a Sea Org recruiter, I never would have uh, not check that. And uh, you never turn them in. You should have turned them in. <laughs> not that anybody deserves the RPF, but yeah, not, not good stuff. Okay. Um, so, da, 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 da. good. Okay. Thank you for that question, X Sion. Okay, we have one more. Uh, that I have from my preset questions, and uh, we will take this one up and then see where we go from there. Jonathan Perry, in the United States military, there is a policy where you are allowed to disobey an unlawful order. Does anything exist like this in Scientology? If a superior is violent at you, why can't you defend yourself and retaliate? I know there's the suppressive person thing, but if you knock the guy out, even though he's in command, why can't you call him a suppressive person? The leadership breaks Hubbard's rules all the time. Yes, the leadership does break the rules all the time. That's why they're the leaders. The golden rule of all cults, all of them, is that the leader does not have to pay attention to the rules. The leader is always the exception to the rules. In Scientology, a lot of celebrities also get to break a lot of the rules uh, because they are celebrities. It all has to do with influence and power and the distribution and control of that power. Um, David Miscavige, L. Ron Hubbard before him, held all the power. This is why L. Ron Hubbard went out of his way to call himself Source. He is the source of all of Dianetics and Scientology, which means he is the one who holds all the power. It all emanates from him, and he's giving it to you. He's doling it out to you. David Miscavige has taken over that mantle when he took over RTC and took over running Scientology. So David Miscavige sees himself as the ultimate authority. And this is akin to the Christian subjective ethics argument of God, where God is the source of all goodness. Therefore, if God does something, it's inherently good. Period. End of story. And a lot of people believe that. I don't believe that, but a lot of people do. And they can accept that. They go, well, it's God. So he's good. And everything he does is good, even when he's doing things that appear to my eyes and yours to be evil or bad or immoral or wrong. It's not because he's the one who determines what is good and bad. His very existence is what creates the concepts of good and bad. And not to get too theological on all this, but it's a very similar, it's in fact the same calculation 
with a cult leader. That's one of the big problems with having cults and cult leaders or thought leaders of that importance or that extreme, you know, power is that they're, they're the ones who get to define what's good and bad, moral or immoral. And, and so that's how followers who are in this sort of weird codependent relationship with that leader, that's how they buy into and accept it. Is well, he's the one who de- who determines what's good and bad, right? Uh, David Miscavige speaks for L. Ron Hubbard, and L. Ron Hubbard is source. So that's how they kind of get away with it: is people imprison themselves in a in this prison of belief. This is part of that prison: is that the leader is the one who gets to determine what's right and wrong, good or bad. So the very idea. The mere hint that you would physically assault or take on or go after that leader? What? 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 You know, like it's, it's, it's inconceivable to the membership that the leader could ever do anything wrong or bad. And so even if that leader is beating on somebody... Well, they must have deserved it. They must have pulled it in. They must have, you know, why would they do these mistakes that would cause the leader to get so mad that he would feel the need to beat on this person in order to correct them, to show them the error of their ways? He wasn't maliciously beating on them, see? He was beating on them because he had to in order to teach them a lesson. Isn't he wonderful? Isn't he so compassionate and understanding that he would take the time to do that rather than just kicking the person to the curb and kicking them out? He's still letting them be here. He's still granting them grace, you know, this kind of thing. You know, again, people can make anything make sense if they have a good enough reason to. And that's the kind of mental calculations that go on in, a, in the head of somebody who's watching a David Miscavige beat on a Scientologist and think to himself, why is this happening? Well, it's not David Miscavige's fault. It's this guy who's getting hit. That, it's his fault. I mean, I know this is crazy. I, I know that what I'm saying is, is, is absolutely nuts. But it's what people do to make all of this make sense for themselves so that they can maintain the belief that Scientology or their cult or their belief set is inherently and naturally good and couldn't ever be anything else but good. They have to reimagine reality to fit with that belief rather than remake their belief to fit with reality. People are amazing. People are amazing in, in, in what they can do and how they go about doing it. You know, people often say that, um, you know, conspiracy theorists and flat earthers and these people are just a bunch of morons. They demonstrate so much imagination and even raw intelligence in figuring their way through the craziest ideas that they must believe are true in order for their 
inter- interpretation of reality to continue to make sense to them. You know, it's really quite something. It really is. Uh, anyway, probably going on too long about that, but that's um, that's the bottom line with all that stuff. Okay. Okay. Um, and yeah, exactly, Holly. That is the only way that, that Miscavige gets away with stuff like that. It really is a prison of belief. I can't, can't emphasize that enough. Okay, so there we go. And I think that's everything. If I've now's the time to tell me, guys, if I've missed anything above, throw it at me now. Because uh, I'm planning on um, on wrapping up the show here. Otherwise, I think we've covered some great answers and great questions. Yeah, great answers, if I say so myself. I just mean I, I think we've had some great questions this hour. And um, and thank you for uh, following me and being a little flustered at the beginning there. Um, I, I really enjoy doing these live streams. I love interacting with you guys, uh, you know, live like this. Uh, there will probably be another one of these uh, midweek here, or we'll see what else happens. Um, but probably this, probably do another one of these midweek, maybe Wednesday or Thursday or something. Um, and otherwise, um, yeah, I think I'm going to wrap it up now. I want to say a couple things real fast in wrapping up is, of course, this channel is entirely fan-funded, guys. Your super chats are awesome and very much appreciated. Support for the channel can also exist through Patreon, PayPal, Venmo. I've got links to all of that in the description section to this and every video I've produced. So I would very much appreciate it if you would buy me a cup of coffee or support the channel in some fashion, preferably a, more, a, a regular support. It would be uh, most best of all. And, of course, I want to let you guys know that um, I am doing my level best to use all of this knowledge and, and skills and stuff that I have learned over the years to try to help people now through consultation. So if you have need for personal consultation, uh, whether it's cult recovery, whether it is helping a family or friend who is in a cult or in a coercive situation, you don't know what to do, you have questions, you don't want to screw it up, you know, you can contact me and I can help you out with that. Okay, so you can write to me at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. Uh, or contact me through my website, and I will get back to you, and we can uh, we can work that out. All right, folks, that all being said, thank you very much for coming around and watching this week. I really appreciate it, and I will see you soon. All right, let's go ahead and uh, wrap it up. <laughs>